0: But really, she comes from her own lineage, her own familial lineage in in, um, the women's practice, because her mother was also ordained uh, as a Mahayana nun. Um, And so uh, it has really infused um, all of her experience. Um, And um, I just wanted to uh, just share one personal story of when I met Venerable. as a monastic, and I wanted to visit her at the end of my um, ordained period, because most of the all of the teachers that I had um, encountered were uh, were male, and they were wonderful teachers. And I also knew that um, there was this lineage of women teachers and senior practitioners that that did not have as much. Um, Presence in the in the culture and so when I um, and the other piece um, that I that that I was interested in because um, she has had to go against the stream of such patriarchal conditioning and and um, and oppression. I really wanted to learn how She practiced through it so that it could translate to my own experience around uh, oppression in in race dynamics or uh, homophobia or all of those aspects of oppression that that are in our culture. And when I asked her about that, um, she said to me a phrase that I still carry very deeply. And that is, um, she said to me, uh, the greater the challenge the greater the fire. The greater the fire, the greater the purification of the heart. And that has really inspired me um, um, ever since that I met her a few years ago. So please welcome Venerable Dhammananda Bhikkhuni. And, and again, I, we feel so privileged and honored to have your teachings. Yes, I quote you.
1: People always talk about re-establishing Pikuni Sangha in Thailand. When you re-establish something, it must have been there before, and then we lost it. We never lost it. We never had it. For the 700 years that we have been a nation, the Pikuni lineage never get to us. So therefore, we are actually introducing, so the word is introducing this, uh, the missing, heritage. It is the heritage that the Buddha has given us. So therefore, we must take responsibility. So in the whole process of doing what we are doing, there's lots of going back to the text, trying to find pieces here and there to actually nourish our spiritual strength. And in one of the pieces that I discovered is the story of Yasotara, that is the Buddha's ex-wife. So that's what I intend to tell you tonight, to share with you my discovery. And of course, we are not going to talk about history, because history is his story. (laughs) We are going to talk about her story. Okay, so this, uh, telling the story in a style of her story is a discovery of the feminist. The feminists tend, tend, tend to do this. The story of Yasutara, if you read in the text, is hardly anything about her. One line that she came from Devadaha. She was also from Sakayan family, just like the Buddha. They they were cousins, in fact, coming from the same ancestor. The very, very first king, his name was Ogagaraja. Have you heard of his name before? (coughs) Now, if you read, you have to really dig into the Buddhist history to come to this very first king, Ogagaraja. Ogagaraja had nine children, four uh, daughters—no, sorry, five daughters, and four sons. And then somehow the first queen died. So he married the second queen. The second queen bore him a very cute son, little one, whereas all the nine, the nine children were all grown. One day when he was playing with this small son, the son was very, very cute. So he said something like, Oh, I would have given you anything that, that you ask. So the second queen asked for the throne. He as the king, you know, we have a saying that if you are a king, whatever you said, you must keep to your words. So he had to keep to his words by giving the throne to the youngest son. What happened to the nine children? So they had to request them to move out and find a new city. Go out and build your own city. So the sisters married the brothers. So you actually have four couples, right? And because there were five sisters, the eldest one were not married. She was like mm, a consultant to all the sisters and brothers. (laughs) They started a new city, which later on came to be known, Vastu. You're family with the name? No, you must be familiar with the name. This is the Buddha's uh, town. Now, that eldest sister who did not get married, she had some kind of skin disease. And it's supposed to be contagious. So she had to go and live a life of hermit in a forest. In the same forest, there was a king, King, king Rama. He also had the same kind of skin disease. So he had to leave. He had to leave Varanasi, the place where he used to be the king. and he came and lived in that forest. He ate from this particular tree certain kind of certain kind of tree that is healing, has healing essence to the disease that he had and he was cured. He noticed also on the other end of the forest there is this woman always covered up you know because she didn't want anyone to see her face. So one day he went there and he shouted. That whoever lived behind that tree, you know, you try eating the fruit from this tree and you will get, you will be recovered from the skin disease that you have. I I suspect that you have the same skin disease that I did have. And I was cured because I ate the fruit from this tree. So that's how the story went. So the princess was healed from eating the fruit of that tree. And eventually they got married. And they started another city called Devadaha familiar? Devadaha Devadaha turned out to be the city of Yesotara. okay, Vastu is a city of the Buddha thank you, the Buddha so that's, it took many hundred years you know, before eventually you have Kabilavastu on one hand and you have Devadaha on, on the other hand so on this side you have the young prince Sitarata, and you have on this side you have this Princess Yasotara. Now, when you read the story, the biography of the Buddha, it is the story of the Buddha, so very little you hear about Yasotara, the person whom we are talking about her story tonight so It is very difficult to piece up her story, to tell you. As an academic, it's even more difficult. We know that she was chosen, she was very beautiful, and she was chosen by Sitarata. But the way Sitarata had to go through all kind of competition, no? You read about the story, how they went through all kind of competition. Yasodharas father, was not very happy with Siddhartha because Siddhartha always kind of philosophizing most of the time, you know, always wonder into nature what is this and what is that. Yasodharas father was looking for someone who is brave and strong, fight for the nation, that kind of thing. So he had to go through contest competing with other princes, you know, who also wanted to get married to this beautiful princess. The the story that I was very impressed was when they tried out with a sword, you know, coming on a horseback and then you slashed the tree. So all the other princes, they slashed the tree and the, the tree fell, boom. Oh, very good, very good. So, by the time when sitarata came, he slashed the tree, and the tree was still standing there, so people really boo him, you know. He missed it. They thought he missed it. But what happened after that, there was a soft breeze, then the tree fell. You see, such a nice story. <laughs> and I'm telling it as though I have seen it with my own eyes. Why not? Why not you kind of visualize it? So, so he was, uh, he was recognized that yes, yes, his swordsmanship was really good, and he was he also excelled in other kind of uh, competition. So finally, he got the hand of the princess yasodhara and they were married. And of course, she had to leave Devadaha and come all the way to Kabilavastu to stay with him, but it is not coming to the husband's family without any uh, any relatives the buddha's prince taratas mother sri mahamaya also came from devadaha sri mahamaya the buddha's mother was yasodhara's aunt yes now you're kind of kind of kind of getting the story pieces of the story together but Maya Sri Mahamaya the one who is so beautiful Maya is illusion so beautiful like illusion that was the meaning of her name she died after giving her birth to him after seven days she died so it was Mahapajabhati Mahapajabhati was Sri Mahamaya's sister also coming from Devadaha also Mahapajabhati was Yasotara's aunt okay so When Sri Mahamaya, the Buddha's mother, died, it was Mahapajapati who took care of the Buddha. This will come back again when she asked for ordination and he was refusing her for three times. And Ananda reminded him that it was she who breastfed you when you were a baby and how come you're not giving her ordination? So you could see a very close relationship between Mahapajapati and the Buddha and Princess Yasotara. So Yasotara came over to Kabilavastu, not quite alone with her aunt. And they were married when they were 16 years old. Both of them were, were born on the same day, same month, and same year. Yes. When the Buddha was born there were seven other living beings as well as other things that's born at the same time and she was one of them. This may be true, this may not be true, but that's how the text goes. So we, we believe in this story for the time being. Same age. They are of the same age. They must have been married, happily married because there was no record of their fighting. There was no record of fighting, so they must have lived happily together. But I don't know why it took them so long. Thirteen years when Rahula was born. The son was born. Now, during these thirteen years, Sitartha was already beginning to question, question, but his questions You can call it existentialist in nature because he starts questioning whether everyone has to have this kind of suffering, suffering of getting old, suffering of getting sick, suffering of dying. That becomes a very major quest for him. And because of this quest, that's why we have Buddhism. Yes, So the quest was real for him. And he was really uh, pondering over this. How to get out of this suffering. Suffering of... He did not come to birth yet. The suffering of getting old, getting sick, and suffering of dying. <coughs> Just at that time when he was really thinking deep into his own mind, the message came from the, from the, the palace that Lord very good news a son is born to you in the middle of his thought you know come how how am I to come out of this suffering so he exclaimed Rahula Rahula means bondage Mm -hmm. generally the text (coughs) translate to you or interpret for you that a son is is, is a bondage to to the parents but I would go one step further to, to give a new interpretation that because he was pondering how am I to get out of this suffering, suffering of existence, so to say, suffering of, of getting sick, getting old and death. And now my son is born and my son is now equally trapped like me. When you interpret it in this way, then it becomes immediate pressure for the Buddha. I have to, I have to leave now. Now it's not only me that is trapped in this, in this world of suffering. My son is born and the fact that he is born, he's also equally trapped. That is the message. Of course he visited them, but the artists always portray him peeping from the window, peeping from the door. He did not come and hold the baby. The wife and the newborn baby were asleep. Try to imagine, try to imagine that if you were father and you already feel the baby, hold the baby in your hand, would you be able to leave him? Would you be able to leave the wife who just give you the best kind of gift for an Indian woman to give, that is to bring, up, to bring about the birth of a newborn son, mind you, son. Daughters don't count, they count only the heads of the boys. So here, maybe, very, very few people attend this, this gathering because most of you are women and women are not counted. You know, that kind of context, social context that we are talking about. So he could not possibly have actually hold the held the, the baby in the hand, you know. So he just looked at them from the window. They were asleep. So he left that night. He left that night. He crossed Anoma River with his uh, attendant, Channa and the horse Kantaka. And the horse jumping across the river like this, you know, with Channa holding onto the tail of the horse. Have you seen that photo before? Have you seen that painting? I always think that, oh, lots of uh, fairy tales, you know, as, uh, you cannot take it seriously when they have written the text like that. But then when I was in my late teens, I grew up in India and I did see something like that, you know, that a person riding the horse and the second person holding on to the tail of the horse and jump, with the horse, so it is possible. So the, the artist who portrayed that photo, that picture that we see in man, many of the mural paintings in Thailand, that could be true, that could be true. But the idea of this crossing a Noma River should be taken symbolically, that he has given up his worldly life, he has given up his throne. Then, on the other side of the river, he cut his hair. The Indian prince, they have long hair, so just, he just grabbed his hair like that and cut it with a sword. So, whatever remained on his head did not grow, just remained like that and turned towards the right. That's why you have the Buddha image like that. You see his hairstyle? That is called shell-like. It curls like shell and it always curls towards the right. He is my favorite style. This is Chiang San style, very beautiful. So that will explain to you why the Buddha image always have this, this hairstyle. He, he never shaved, you know. He's one monk who never shaved.
2: Uh-huh.
1: He never shaved. So the story, that's how the story went. He just grabbed his hair and then, and then cut it like that. He removed all the jewelry, wrapped it up and sent it with with Channa, the charioteer, to take it back to the king, the father. That is the message of, to tell the father that I'm not coming back. A very strong message. But tonight we're not talking about the Buddha. (laughs) We are talking about his wife. Now it's very difficult because nobody has recorded. We knew that Rahula was born. She gave birth to Rahula, that's it. What happened to her after that, we have to piece up. From Indian social context, from the reading, and from the rendering of the heart of someone who lost her husband, of someone who lost the meaning in life, of a woman who lost her husband. She did not understand about this going out to in search of Buddhahood or in search of enlightenment. She didn't understand that and nobody understood that in, the, in that time. So when she woke up the next day, she had just brought this beautiful gift that a woman could could give to her husband and to her husband's family. But how come the husband is nowhere to be seen? And she looked around and all the, the lady in wait, all of them just kept their head down, did not want to meet her eyes. What is going on in this household? Then later on, the queen came, Mahapajavati, came to visit her and praised her with all kind of beautiful words. A bit too much for her and she kind of wondering what's happening why is this you know number one the lady in wait none of them would meet meet her eyes (coughs) number two this Queen came in and praised her so highly that she just gave birth to a son and that's what happened what happened what happened then you know so finally she asked anything wrong then it was the Queen's duty to tell her that Prince Siddhartha already left. My husband left at this time when I just brought him the best gift in our life. He left. She went into her inner court. As a princess, you don't allow people to see your tear. She wept her heart out by herself. The only thing that nourished her, nourish her to find her existence meaningful is the son was the son. So that was her duty to take care of this son the best she can. Once in a while the, the, the king, king father would send envoys, send the soldiers you know, to look for the prince and always come back to report. Now the prince already cut his hair. Now the prince is wearing all white, just like sannyasi, just like ascetic, you know, and leading very uh, like a life of recluse, eating nothing. He is now, he is now <coughs> fasting. So she, as a good wife, also went through exactly the same thing of what the news, the reports came back to the palace. So, no more adorn her hair. You know how the Indian women always keep long hair. And they they have this red sign, red mark on the the parting of their hair. That is a symbol of a married woman. That is a symbol of of auspiciousness. Without a husband, there is no more auspiciousness for women. So she could not put that red sign anymore. And there is the luck here. The red dot, that is a sign of... Auspiciousness, a sign that a woman, woman would proudly put it on her forehead for her husband to enjoy. For her, she cannot, cannot put that deluxe anymore. The hair that used to, she used to do, do her hair up very nicely, with the jewel on her hair, that she stopped doing. Just simply let loose her long hair. The beautiful sari, different colors, she stopped wearing all the colored sari and only wear the white sari. Just like a widow, you know, just like a woman who lost her husband. All the jewelers, jewelries that she used to wear as a princess, she just put it aside. When there is no husband around, a woman should not get dressed because she cannot attract any other man except her husband. So the kind of lifestyle that she was leading was just like a sannyasi, was just like a recluse, except that she was living in the palace, and he was living out there in the forest. The rumors in the palace came, what kind of a woman she must be, what kind of a wife she must be. That's why her husband left her. These kind of rumors were going on in the palace. It was never recorded. It was never recorded, but we could sense it with certain information in the text. Six years passed by, the news came that now he was enlightened. Now he became the Buddha. People start calling him the Buddha. She did not understand what the Buddha mean, but she understood that he was looking for something and now he got what he was looking. Mm. So he should return. My husband is returning because he has gone for something and now he got that and he should be returning. No. The Buddha was enlightened and he was traveling from one place to another. Maybe he was trying to trying his lecture tour trying to see whether the, the message that he discovered, this spiritual message that he discovered, how would it work with this group of people, that group of people. He promised King Bimbisara that when he was enlightened, King Bimbisara would be the first person that he would meet and he would share with him his spiritual discovery. So he visited King Bimbisara of Magadha. And King Bimisara was the very first king who was converted to Buddhism. So he was going on for a year. So the king sent a group of soldiers to invite him back to the palace. Now that you are Buddha, you have already achieved what you were looking for, invite him back. Eight groups or groups of soldiers, you know, eight of them went and when they listened to the Dharma talk given by the Buddha, they all gave up. <laughs> they all became monks, shaved and became monks. So the ninth party, which was led by uh, a very close, uh, very close attendant. So the king called him and said, whatever happened to you, you must come back. You must come back to report to me. And whatever happened, you must invite Prince Siddhartha. They Siddhartha they still didn't call him the Buddha. They still call him Prince Siddhartha. You must invite your prince back. Promise. You promise, otherwise I will not let you go. He bowed and he promised. Yes, Lord, I promise. So he went. But as soon as he met the Buddha, also was ordained. <laughs> but he remembered. He remembered the promise. So eventually he... Uh, talk his way around and uh, invite the Buddha back to, inv- to come and visit, pay a visit to Kabilavastu. So the Buddha came back to pay the first visit to Kabilavastu. After seven years, after seven years, Rahula was already seven years old. His son was seven years old. Now when he was approaching, he came with a large group of monks. They were Bintabhat. They were going for arms round. Going for arms round for the sakyan means going out begging, literally begging. And the sakyan couldn't take this because you know they 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 had lots of pride for being. The lineage of the sakyan never mixed up with people outside. You know, they don't eat food that is cooked by others not to mention about going for alms receiving food from every household that is impossible you cannot imagine that but this is what Siddhartha is doing he must have gone crazy he must have gone out of his mind so the Sakayan prince, prince and princess in the palace they did not recognize the Buddha they did not want to pay respect to him none of them would fall there hands to bow to the Buddha. This is in the text. I'm speaking from the text. But even the father, King Suttona, King Suttona asked the Buddha, please do not do like this. Do not bring bad names to the family. Mm-hmm. And it was the Buddha who answered to King Sutotana, his father, that this is a tradition, this is a custom that has been practiced from the Buddhas of all. This is the Buddha's uh, culture. So then the king, the king father bowed to him. And he was the eldest. He was the eldest. He was the most senior among the Sakayan. So when the most senior bowed to the Buddha, only then it forces others, forced others to bow to the Buddha. But they did not want to bow to the Buddha. But because they didn't understand what the Buddha, what being Buddha meant. So the king invited the Buddha, please come for meal tomorrow. Come for meal at the palace. So the Buddha accepted invitation. He came back to the palace the next day to have meals with the whole retinue of the monks. The the culture at that time was, you know, when you are invited to come for dana, to come for lunch, after that, then they will engage them in giving some dharma talk. So when he was giving Dharma talk, he just looked around and he could not find Yasotara, his ex-wife. So he asked from the king, what happened to the princess Yasotara? She is not among you. So the king sent the lady in wait to please go invite, go to the inner court and invite the princess to come out here. The lady in wait went and what princess Yasotara said, she said no. First time in the reading of the Buddhist text, you find someone who actually said no to the Buddha. And the Buddha accepted. This is very beautiful. The Buddha accepted. He knew right away that he had done wrong to her. He knew it right away. This is in the text. He turned around to Sariputra and Mokalana. The names familiar to you? The leading disciples. Whatever form of respect that she is going to pay to me, you don't interfere. Isn't that interesting? That's very interesting. You know, you don't interfere. You don't interfere. So he had to walk all the way from the main palace to the inner court, to her, to her palace. His palace also. Mm-hmm. No? So when he approached her palace, she came out with her long hair, and wipe his feet. Try to visualize that. Wipe his feet. And she was in tears. What wrong have I done that you left me the night that I brought the best gift to you? So she was all begging him to explain all this. I suffered all these seven years, not knowing what mistake I have done to you. With all the gossips in the palace, blaming me for what for the kind of mistakes that I might have done to you. She was saying all kinds of things that she, that she had bottled up for all these seven years. The Buddha picked her up like this and put her in the right seat. And he sat down and in front of all the king and the queen and all the, the royal uh, members, he started to tell them. Why did he choose to, to tell this story? It was Ginnari Jataka. He chose this Ginnari Jataka, which is a, his previous life. Y- you understand the word Ginnari. Ginnari is half bird and half man. In that life, he was born half bird and half man. So was Yesotara, was born as his wife. Half bird, half man. And they, live, they live at the at the foot of Himalayan mountain. And because she was so beautiful, she was captured by a hunter and offered to the king of Varanasi. You see? And King of Varanasi wanted to approach her, wanted to make her his wife. But every time when he approached her, she would atistana means make a determination that with the honesty for my husband, may the heat come out from my body. So the heat was so strong that the king could not touch her. She was, you know, the body was so hot. And that was how she saved herself to honor her husband. Nobody could touch her. See, that's such a beautiful story. She went on fasting, refused to eat. Then she became very thin, very skinny. Finally, king of Varanasi decided that I cannot make good use of this beautiful lady. Might as well take her back. So the hunter took her back to Himalayan mountain. And that was when husband and wife rejoined. And they moved further in so that they will not be disturbed by other people. Why did the Buddha choose to tell this story in front of the royal families who must have had condemned her? for not being honest to him, for being bad wife, for being all kind of things, you know. That's why the Buddha had to come and protect her and place her back in the position of honored. And that's what he did. And that's what he did. So she was very joyful that night. She was very joyful. The next day, the next day, the Buddha coming out for alms again with the monks. Now, Prince, Princess Yesodara, with her son, with the young Prince Rahula, she told her son that, that that man walking ahead of this line of monks, that's your father. Go and ask for dayacca. means actually means lineage. Go and ask from, for the lineage from him. What she meant was now that the King Sutotana is getting old and the throne should come to the Buddha. But now that the Buddha had already left the palace, so the throne should now come to the young prince, Rahula. That's what she meant. But the Buddha said, the best lineage that I would give to my son is Arya, the noble lineage. So what he did? on the right hand he was holding on holding on to holding on the bowl the left hand he held Rahula and he took Rahula to Nikrotarama outside too. and gave Rahula to Sariputra 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 ordained Rahula shaved the head seven years old, shaved his head, and he became the first Samanera in Buddhism. Seven years old. Imagine the mother. Imagine the grandparents. The grandparents who were counting that they already lost their son. The the Buddha already became sannyasi became ascetic. And uh, Another brother, half-brother, the Buddha's half-brother, his name was Nanda. Nanda was getting married, but the Buddha somehow urged him to become monk. So the king lost both sons, and now he lost the grandson, who otherwise would become king of Kabilavastu. See? Then, the next day, the grandfather came. King Sutodana had to come to the Buddha and say that it's very painful, very painful for the, for the mother, very painful for the grandparents that now you have ordained. Of course, it's your son, but it's, we are his guardian. So please, next time when you want to give ordination to young boys, please ask permission from the guardians. This is the rule that the monks has to practice up till today. Yes, so when you ordain a young young person, you must get permission, not only from the parents, because the Buddha was a father, no? Not only from the parents, but also from the guardians. Then the Buddha left, left for Vesali. Princess Yasotara could not see the departure of her son and her husband because her eyes were curtained with tears. After all these seven years she was waiting for her husband to come home. He came home and brought her joy for one night and now the only thing that she was living for was Rahula, her son, now her son was also taken away. Such a heartbreaking experience that she was going through. So with this, with this pain that she was experiencing, pain of losing her husband, pain of losing her son, not quite understand. She did not understand about this Buddhahood. She did not understand about enlightenment. So she had to suffer. Then when King King Sutotana, before King Sutotana passed away, he was very ill. And the Buddha came as a good son, as a good son to take care of King Sutotana, and at the same time gave Dharma talk to him until he was enlightened. King Sutotana was enlightened as an arahat, and then he passed away. King Sutotana was enlightened, and the Queen Mahabhajabadi entered the first stream of enlightenment. You know, they had, there are four stages, Sotapanna, Skatakami, Anakami, and Arahat. She, she was Sotapanna. So when the King Sototana died, she asked the Buddha to become ordained. And eventually, after some hesitation, she was given ordination. She and a large group of, of the Sakyan ladies, Princess Yasotra was not included in that. This is very interesting. I would imagine that she would be one among them, you know, among these 500 Sagiyani who were ordained along with uh, the Queen. No, she was not. She was ordained the following year. Now, after her ordination, soon she became enlightened with this experience of suffering that she had been through it was easier to give up she gave up you know when her husband was giving up somewhere outside in the forest she was giving up so many things even though she was living in the in the palace she was praised by the buddha for being a tataka tataka means foremost foremost in Maha Apinya, Maha Apinya, you know Apinya, there are six Apinya, the supernatural power. You have divine eyes, you have divine ears, you can read people's mind, you can go back in the past, many past lives, and you can perform miracles. Most important, you must be enlightened. So these Apinya, People get involved in this opinion, this divine eyes, divine ears. You, know, you see things when you sit medita- in meditation. You want to see things. All that can be true, but it does not last. As long as you don't have the sixth one, that is enlightenment. Okay? So in Buddhism, we did not deny performing miracles, but we, the Buddha said that is not the path to enlightenment so therefore we don't get stuck with performing miracles we don't get stuck with divine eyes divine ears now she yesotha was praised by the buddha for being best not in ordinary ordinary apinya but maha apinya maha means great great apinya so she like you know people could some people could have divine ears, divine eyes for certain distance, but for her she would have divine eyes for greater extent, greater distance. So by the time she was ordained, by the time she was enlightened, she now really took the Buddha as her master, as her teacher, no more husband. So really, She was really performing a very good duty as a pikuni. And because she was princess, Wherever she moved, you know, the king of that particular city or town would offer her arama, build arama, build a temple for her, so that she would she could teach, Pikunis, you know, the, the newly ordained Pekunis. So like that, she was moving from one place to another, and she really had great, great students. There was not one single incident that we they have recorded about her meeting the Buddha personally. We never had that. But there was one particular incident that uh, Rahula. Rahula is now as a novice, you know, he visited his mother. And he found that Yasotara, the Pikuni, the Pikuni, was having stomach pain. Rahula came back to report not to the Buddha, not to the father, but to Sariputra, to his teacher that my mother I went to visit my mother she's having stomach pain and when she was in the palace she used to drink uh, mango juice and she could that's the remedy that she used to take mango juice so what Sariputra did he went out for alms the next morning he mentioned this to the king, King Bimbisara so King Bimbisara offered the whole mango grove that if the Sangha should, should have any need for the mango, please come and take the mango from this grove. That was the only incident. We, we have seen the connection between the son and the mother, but not the Buddha and Yesutra, Even after her ordination, we did not have any piece of information at all until she was 78 years old. Remember, they were of the same age. The Buddha was also 78 years old. Now she thought that we are of the same age. If I died after him, it would not be good sign of respect. I would like to pay respect to my teacher, my great teacher, by passing away before him. See, that's the way she thought. So that is the first time, the only time that she actually went to see him Bow to him and ask permission to pass away. The Buddha gave her permission to pass away, but asked her to perform miracles. Now, if you read the canon, if you read the Buddhist text, the Buddha asked the monks and the nuns not to get involved in performing miracles, not to get involved in practicing miracles. But in this particular incident, he actually asked her to perform miracles. Why is that? Why is that? You know, he praised her for being foremost in a pinya. Who knew about it? Except the Buddha, right? Who knew about it, that she could perform miracles, she she had divine eyes, divine ears. Nobody knew that, except the Buddha. So this is the time she is dying. She is going to pass away now. This is the time to prove to the Sangha, Piku Sangha as well as Pikuni Sangha, that she is worthy of his praise. You get the point? So she performed miracles. It's like she opened up the sky, and in the sky, it's like you see a big, huge screen, uh, television screen, you know, in different life that she was born with him she was born in many life together with the Buddha the past life of the Buddha and in each life she bowed to him from the sky bowed to him like going one life one life like that and then the last one was her own reflection of 1000 1, Yasodhara up on the sky and all of them 1000 of them bowed to the Buddha at the same time so this is the kind of uh, miraculous power she was displaying at the end. And everyone saw that. So it is a kind of rubber stamp, rubber stamp that the fact that the Buddha praised her for having this maha-apinya, you can see with your own eyes, it's not only the Buddha giving her this title, out of love because she was his ex-wife but she can actually perform you see it with yourself by yourself so that was the last time that after performing miracles she came down and bowed to the buddha saying goodbye to him and then she left and she died in meditation in her in her small kuti she returned to her small kuti and in meditation position she passed away the buddha gave her funeral worthy of the Princess of Sakya worthy of the leading disciple on the Pikuni side so this is the life of Yesotara as seen by me (laughs) (laughs) so I dug up pieces of uh, information here and there and my spiritual connection with her spirit around Vastu. and my experience of living in india knowing the experience the oppression of the indian women you know how 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 great suffering that they had to go through in a family life how they have to have they have to have sons they have to have they have to get married number 1 and they have to have sons in order to continue the lineage, in order for their sons to perform the last rite for their parents, which is called sarata, so that the spirit of the parents can go to heaven. But when the Buddha came, the Buddha said, salvation is you do it yourself. You don't have to depend on your husband. You don't have to depend on your sons. So that's why Buddhism, Convey such a beautiful message for everyone across. Enlightenment is each one of us' responsibility, not depending on your son, not depending on the husbands. And that is the beautiful message that that the Buddha gave us. And you could see it in the life of Yosotara. With the spirit of Yosotara tonight with us, we should ask her for blessing, that we, each one of us find our own path to enlightenment. Thank you. Now, Ben, where are you? Ben, uh, we, we, can, we can have a look at uh, the CD. This, uh, the, the one that we are showing you now, uh, was taken last year from my, my own temple. We celebrated the centenary of my mother, 100 years. She passed away when she was 95. So, and also the opening of the Vihara of the Medicine Buddha. So both, uh, both functions went on at the same time. You will see the context of Thai culture, Buddhist culture in Thailand.
3: ของ 6 เมษายนพุทธศักราช 2551 ภิกษุณีหรือหลวงแม่หรือหลวงแม่และภิกษุณีด้วยมีภิกษุณี 2 และและสืบทอดพระพุทธศาสนาสืบทอดที่หลวงแม่ธรรมนันธาและคณะภิกษุณีรับวันที่ 6 เมษายนของทุกปีนับ 2551 นี้จัดศตวรรษหรือ 100 ปีพอดีพร้อมกับงานณพระวิหารพระไภษัชยคุรุพุทธเจ้าวัดทรงธรรมกัลยาณีเพื่อเดียวกันทางด้านหน้าได้เข้ามาร่วมในพิธีด้วยทั้งการถวายพระวิหารในภาคเช้าทรง
1: lighting one incense stick is for the ancestors for the dead ones so this is in, inviting the ancestors to come
3: and, and to share the merit making เสียงตีระฆังจากนั้นขบวนแห่เพื่อสมโภชตามด้วยริ้วขบวนแห่เฉลิมฉลองเดินทางมาถุงแก่พุทธานุสสิตและนะโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตคุณเรณูมีจากนั้นจึงประกอบพิธีเปิดพนาพิสุดีสงทั้งชาวไทยและชาวศีลังกาได้สูตรมหาสมัยสูตรซึ่งเป็นบทสวทที่มีเนื้อหาเกี่ยวกับการอันเชิญถวยเทศเทวดาและยากมานมาชุมหนุ่มด้วยความสามขีปลองดองเพื่อร่วมเฉลิมเฉลองงานสมพธพระวิหารพระภัยสัตว์ชยะคุรุพุทธเจ้าสวด 1 ชั่วโมงขับกล่อมจิตใจในโอกาสนี้หลวงแม่ธรรมนันธาได้ให้การต้อนรับเจ้ารัตนาราม 4 คือภิกษุภิกษุณีอุบาสกและอุบาสิกาจังวัดสูตรจากวัดภัยน้ํา 5
1: 8 So we will stop here so that you can ask questions. Uh, I think we have shown you enough that the working of the Pikunis and the Pikus, we always have respect for the Pikus. Always invite them for any ceremony that we perform. In case you have any questions from from this film or a question from my talk, yes, please feel free. Larry, where are you? Come here, come here. We need a chair. Would you need that? Sit on that.
0: Okay. <laughs> is this
1: uh, yeah, I do not see you very clearly, so really stick hand your hand out. Oh, so there's microphone are there. Questions? there? Mm. I have two questions. Mm. One is um, why a medicine Buddha? And the second question is um, I know from learning from you before that the bhikshuni order requires three um, ordained sangha to ordain future sangha. So does that mean you will be ordaining future sangha, future bhikshuni? Yes, yes. Thank you. Shall shall I answer each one of them? Yes. Why why medicine Buddha? I ask you, why not?
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> All of us need to be healed. And the work of the Benesin Buddha is to help us spiritually. That is the ultimate, the ultimate one. But of course, you know, when we are sick inside, we don't know. but when we are sick physically, when you are not well physically, we tend to recognize that easier. So uh, you come with an excuse of physical illness, but eventually we will be healed spiritually also. Uh, then the next question you will ask: why blue?
2: Mm.
1: Why blue? I think it's a manifestation of the Buddha that, so that you can differentiate him from other, other aspects of the Buddha. It's only a gimmick to recognize him easier. If you see blue Buddha, it means the medicine Buddha. And the second one about, yes, we have to wait until we, have, we I have standing of 12 years in Theravada, in Theravadin. Pikunis must have 12 years standing, then you can give ordination to the next generation. But then, you know, if this one person is asking for ordination, uh, we must have five. And the one, the preceptor, Ubajaya, Ubajaya must be 12 years, standing in this rope, in this Theravada rope for 12 years. And then together with minimum five pikus, then you can give proper ordination. That is the requirement.
0: Other questions for Venerable?
1: And comments. Yes, there's one behind Larry. Thank you, Venerable. How were you ordained? I was ordained in Sri Lanka. I was going to say I was ordained by devas. No, I was ordained in Sri Lanka. <laughs> I was ordained in Sri Lanka. First, I took seminary ordination. I took the novice ordination for two years. You have to complete the minimum two years. But um, actually, my preceptor was here also. You see that, that nun who was cutting the ribbon with me? That's my preceptor, the Sri Lankan preceptor, her voice is very powerful. She was leading that chanting, Mahasamaya Sutra. I trained with her for two weeks. Didn't get anywhere close. to her.
2: <laughs>
1: So we have her on tape now, so that every time when we had to do this Mahasamaya Sutra, Mahasamaya means, Maha is great, Samaya is uh, that occasion, you know, that great occasion. So this great occasion comes only when you have really big ceremony. So we don't chant that on a daily basis, so we, we need to be trained. But Thank you. My, my, now, my teacher had been a nun for 48 years. Then when they introduced pikuni ordination, she was the first batch to receive full ordination in 1998. In Sri Lanka? In, in Bodkaya, in India. Ah. Then she was appointed by the Sangha to become Upajaya. So the very first batch, two of them were chosen out—the best one, you know—and she was one of the two. And she's now, she's now international bujaya uh, international Pikuni preceptor. That is. Thank you. There's one hand in the back. Would you talk a little bit about your mother? My mother. My mother looked very much like me. Oh, I look very much like my mother. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> she was, in, during the time that she was ordained, there was yet no ordination in Sri Lanka. So she had to take the lineage from Taiwan. So when she came back to Thailand, people brand her as Mahayana. And she did not start Sangha. Maybe uh, Thai society at that time I'm talking about 1970, uh, at that time, uh, we, we had very little knowledge about the Pikunis. and also the women of that time were not educated, were not aware of our responsibility to, to Buddhism. So she did, not, she did not start Sangha, but she started the temple for us. So that, uh, that's uh, really, she prepared the ground, prepared the ground for us. She died when she was 95. So, uh, she waited until I was fully ordained. So one hand here, Larry.
0: Venerable, where, where are you giving ordination? In what location?
1: I was given ordination. Uh, you are giving
0: ordination
3: to, to not, to, bhikkhuni ordination? I, I no, are you giving to giving
1: not are you, yet, are you not acting yet. as a preceptor not yet not yet oh, I see. I, okay. I now I am preceptor only for the novice oh. to the novice which I, I like to share with you we have some some newspaper with us news newsletter with us reporting on the latest ordination of the novice I actually gave 35 ordination to 35 women and it was such a happy such a joy You know, to see women cry, you know, when they shaved their head, they were crying because their parents never thought that they would be able to actually see their daughters ordained in this life. You know, we thought that the ordination is only meant for the the men, and this particular family, they have all six daughters, so they never thought that in this life they would have that opportunity to make the merit-making. So this is the first time I'm giving ordination to seminaries, but I cannot give ordination to fully ordained Pekunis yet. Not yet. Still, I have to wait. But I myself received ordination. The first seminary ordination was in Colombo, but the second ordination, the full ordination, I took it from Dambula. Dambula is now, uh, we could say, center of Pikuni ordination in Sri Lanka. Could you speak a little bit about the transition from being a worldly professor for, was it 20 years, mm-hmm. and then becoming um, a monastic? Uh, you know, when I was academic, this academic, they get trapped in, in the ideas of, you, you should not be subjective about the subject that you are studying. So I was very objective. I actually was invited to Harvard to speak about my mother's story. So I was showing them like this, you know, but I was telling them just like the other and nobody in the audience knew that that nun is actually my mother. You know, I was really separating these two worlds until it was the year 1983 at Harvard Conference. It was women, religion, and social changes. That was a time when I really realized, we're all among these feminists, you know, and it was close closed conference, they didn't allow outsiders to, to attend, that if you are academic, you have all the knowledge about ordination of women, but you are not doing anything about it, There's no good. That was a time that I turned my life into becoming activist. The following year, 1984, I brought out this newsletter. I have a few copies to share with you. And since then, from 1984 up till now, we are still doing this newsletter because it's connecting all the Buddhist women around the world together in English, you know. Uh, Even though my English is never good, but we take it as a tool to communicate, you know. So I don't mind if I make some mistakes, you know, but people who receive the news, they understood what's going on. So, but I never thought of myself getting ordained. People were asking me whether I would be ordained, particularly when my mother started the temple. They were asking what happened after my mother, when my mother is gone, whether I would become a Pekun. I said, no, no, no. Oh, we will form a kind of committee, you know, and we will run the temple with this lay committee. Until suddenly I had this experience this change in life, I think it's a spiritual change, a shift of interest. Suddenly I lost interest. First of all, in putting on makeup. (laughs) I used to wear lots of makeup, you know, and uh, fashionable dresses and silk and all those high heels. I was putting on makeup one morning and you know, when you, you have your face nicely done, then you kind of give smile to yourself. Ah, I'm going out now. I'm going to have a good day today. But that morning, I, I talked to myself, how long do I have to do this? It's enough. It's enough putting on this color, you know? And you know, you know just for those of you who put on makeup, you could never really feel your face like this, you know? Because you have so much makeup on, no? <laughs> So you have to have a piece of something. (laughs) And my hair would would be done up like that, you know, spray, shh. And I could not write on this tuk-tuk because then your hair flies all over. (laughs) Suddenly I had this, this clear idea, how long do I have to do this? And that was my turning point. Enough of the worldly life. But then, how am I going to lead the rest of my life? Then I look to ordination, that this is going to be a meaningful way of leading my life. The rest of my life now, I would like to make an offering. You know, you make an offering to the Buddha, like how you put flowers and make offering, like that. But in that plate, I'm putting my life as an offering to the Buddha. So that, that is uh, quite abrupt the change was quite abrupt. Then I was looking for which tradition I should go in. I was very close to His Holiness Dalai Lama. So I was considering being ordained as a novice in Tibetan tradition. You know, they wear the maroon robe. But then what happened if I go on to Pikuni ordination, then I will have to change the robe again because the Tibetan tradition do not have fully ordained nuns. Then I will have to change the robe into whatever lineage that I will be following. No good. Thai people will get so confused with the maroon robe, the yellow robe, the brown robe, the gray robe, you know. So I, with kindness to my people, I thought of doing something that is closest home base. Home base. So I look towards Sri Lanka. Because Sri Lanka and Thailand, we borrowed from each other, you know, this Buddhist culture back and forth. And we do the same chanting. Uh, in Pali same kind of chanting I, I was already in my 50s imagine if I was ordained in, in Chinese tradition I have to start learning Chinese all over if I was ordained into His Holiness tradition I would have to start chanting in, in, in Tibetan that would not be possible now I have compassion for myself a loving kindness for myself that I would be best chanting in Pali. So that's why I decided to take ordination from Sri Lanka. Chanting, same, same style, same language of chanting. And ever since my ordination, I was never disappointed. It's a very happy life. Very happy life, very fruitful life. If I was not ordained, I would not have been invited here to speak to you
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hello Venerable. thank you so much for coming to Spirit Rock. This has just been so delightful to to hear your wisdom and and feel your bright energy. I'm really curious is your um
3: uh, Center in just outside Bangkok. Is this a place women
2: can go and practice
3: meditation intensively? Yes.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for asking. Yes. We have a seven-day course in English, Living Buddhism. This is open even for non-Buddhist. You know, they can come and really experience what kind of uh, practice we do. We sit together, meditation together, chanting together, and when I go out for arms round like that, I take them along and they just love it, they just love it. So this is seven days crash course on Buddhism. (laughs) I give them Buddhist uh, lectures in Buddhism, but we also live as Buddhists. Mm -hmm. So we, we have this silent meal together, we eat in the bowl, not this big smaller one, (laughs) smaller one. We eat in the bowl, but the lay people sit on the table and we eat together. And and yes, they actually experience the kind of Buddhist lifestyle. And we do have uh, universities like Dayton University in Ohio. They come to our temple every year. Now, the American people are very wise. They don't book hotel. They book temple. (laughs) They book temple. So we would, you know, arrange uh, short courses for them, depending on uh, which department they come from. You know, then uh, we give them Buddhist lectures as well as Buddhist practice for, we call it tailor-made retreat. It's depending on your need. You know, some company during the new year, they close the company and they bring all the workers to, to have a retreat with us. They already whispered, venerable teacher, please emphasize on on harmony. Please emphasize on being on time. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what we do.
3: But can, can women stay and practice longer? Because many, yes, many yes. people ask us, where can I go in Asia to practice? And it's not, not easy for women to find. True. Yes. so that,
1: that's why we are opening up this space mm-hmm. you know, we are uh, fixing up the residential area where people can be more comfortable western people uh, one time we had this uh, German nun coming to our temple she said Venerable I need to tell you this but I need air conditioned room <laughs> <laughs> because you know the heat in, in Thailand could be could be quite a challenge even for me even for me so yes, we, we do have a small, uh, small separate bungalow with air condition for Western people. <laughs> to spoil them a bit. But, but otherwise, all the residents, we do have fan, ceiling fan. We could house up to, I would say, comfortably, up to 40. Yeah. And
2: I'm but
1: but I'm, I'm, I'm planning for ordination, temporary ordination of 108 next two years we should be ready for that we are coming up with a uh, residence
2: Lovely. and I'm a little curious you said you grew up
3: in India and I think sometime along there it said your mother's name there was Singh Kabil in the name? Kabil Singh yes
1: Kabil Singh S- Could you nah. speak
2: a little
3: bit nah. about Now suppose if I meet you
1: on the way you know outside on, on uh, in a corridor I will say you, yes I am married to a, an Indian man and that's the end of it yeah. <laughs> You know, people get so curious. And then when I used to travel as a layperson, I would go by Dr. Kabil Singh. So they would expect me like an Indian man with turban, you know? And here I turn up, a woman not fitting that, that Dr. Kabil Singh at all. Uh, Kabil Singh was a Sanskrit name given to our family by King Ramada VI, who was a Sanskrit scholar. So many Thai people have this uh, Sanskrit name. But particularly my name, it's so Indian, because of this thing, lion, the lion. But of course, both of us, mother and daughter, we are lions, lioness. Where did you grow up in India? In Chantiniketan, that's where I did my first degree. Near near Bengal, no, in Bengal, near Calcutta, four hours north of Calcutta. They speak Bengali there.
2: Uh, I have two questions. Uh, The first is, what kind of environmental justice issues are you involved in? And the second is, what's the attitude of of young Thai men and women toward ordination of
1: women? The second one is easier to answer. They couldn't care (laughs)
2: less.
1: They couldn't care less. But those who care, interested, they kind of look at you, you know? Look at you like that, and then, oh whether she is for real or not and some some of them would come and ask me are you ordained? Are you a monk? Can, can we touch the rope? This rope is a real taboo for Thai women you know because they have been told from childhood don't touch the rope because the rope, the rope is on the body of the men no? mm-hmm. so, so the rope is a no-no, you don't touch the rope so, so now that it's on the body of a woman can they touch the rope? This, this one lady, she's already 70 years old. Is it for real? Can I touch it? Please touch it. <laughs> what happened to those people who, who actually sell the ropes? They are both men and women. <laughs> <laughs> and then somebody, somebody said, somebody who, who do, do not accept ordination of women said, but these women, they're going to soil the rope meaning soil the rope with menstruation. So I answer, well, if you soil the rope, what do you do? You go and wash it. <laughs> so simple as that. There is no taboo in Buddhism. You are bringing Hinduism into this, you know? You know, when in Thailand, you are not supposed to go and circumambulate the stupa because you are a woman. Not because you are a woman, because you menstruate. But Thai people are too polite to put it clearly that menstruating women are not allowed. They just put women not allowed. That's worse.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's worse. But I came to the realization only when I traveled in Indonesia. In Indonesia, they put big, huge signboard to say that women, if you are menstruating, you should not come into this area because they're performing some kind of rituals. But as Buddhist, you must believe that, that the Buddha is the greatest. And if the Buddha's power can be destroyed by women's menstruation, <laughs> then why women should pay respect to the Buddha? See <laughs> so that is not that is not the teaching in Buddhism at all. So the second part of your question about environmental issues. I was among the very early scholars, Buddhist scholars you know, who pick up on environmental issues. But that's way back in 1980s. By going back to the texts, going back to Buddhist texts, and search out passages that deal with environment, deal with the trees, deal with conservation of water, and all that, you know. And we print out books. And the books were distributed to temples. Because we considered it's the, the monks who actually have direct access to teaching the local people. That that was my involvement in a project called Perception, Buddhist Perception of Nature, which His Holiness Dalai Lama was a kind of patron. You know, so that started from 1980, 85. And then later on, when in our own temple, we are very concerned about. About this reduce, reduce what we use, recycle, reuse, and recycle. So each month we sell papers, plastics, uh, wire, and we get about eight hundred baht back in return every every month, every month. And we are very concerned about compose, you know, getting things back to the soil and, and try not to burn the leaves, you know, the, the dry leaves. We try to, to preserve it and return back back to the soil again. So that, that is the kind of uh, kind of training that I have been trying to give to the people in our community. And social justice, of course, you know, being so being socially engaged, Buddhist, always deal with social justice and the big social justice is on gender issue. Ordination is one of them. In my early work, I was concerned about ordained women, and I, it was too much for me to deal with prostitution. But then after some times, I realized that, you know, the prostitutes, they're doing their work on this side of the wall, and this side of the wall is a temple. No, it's so closely linked The fact that we close the door for women to be ordained, but the door to the whorehouse is widely open. Why is that? You know, so this kind of question start coming back again and again and realize that it's actually connected. Connected. The fact that we do not allow women this space, the monastic space, but the space to go the other way is so widely open that there is something to be balanced, something to be, to be addressed. So that's why uh, I focus now more on the ordination issue, but I see it as all interconnected. The man who cut down the trees, the man who raped a woman, I see it as same kind of mentality. Same kind of mentality. You rape the forest, and you rape a woman. Same kind of men- mentality that is going on. Venerable, Um, can you speak a little bit about the difference in um, the countries that have the full ordination that do not have full ordination and what is the desire of women in various countries to come into the monastic life Mm. and to come into Buddhism? Yes, thank you. That was a topic I gave last night at Stanford University. We talk about how, how the Pekunis can bring about, what good is there for you as Pekunis you know, to bring about to society. And I, I give uh, an example taken from Taiwan, because Taiwan is about 50 years ahead of us. The, the work of the Pekunis in Taiwan is great, really great. Actually, today we had lunch with them. Uh, we visited one of the Chinese temples in Lafayette, and, and they actually offered us lunch. Now, in Taiwan, 50 years ago, Buddhism was nothing but superstitious. So educated uh, Taiwanese, Chinese Taiwanese, they don't want to have anything to do with Buddhism. Okay? Now, when the, in mainland China, when the communists took over, before that, the Pekunists, they knew that they will not be able to survive communist rule. So they start moving out to Taiwan. By start moving out, they move along with them, their wealth. So they start building the temples in Taiwan. After the communists took over, the monks, who thought that they would, the strong, you know, strong brothers, they would be able to survive, the communists, but they realized that they could not. So they start escaping from mainland China to Taiwan. Escaping. They had nothing on them, not even the robe. They had just kind of loin cloth, cloth you know, that they, they came with the boat. And it was the Pekunis in Taiwan who actually helped the brothers, the, the monk's brother, to get established on the new soil. You see that relationship? That will tell you why the Pekunis in Taiwan is very successful because of this. So the monks always feel gratitude towards the nuns, you know, for the because the nuns actually help them to get established. Now, these uh, these Pekunis, when they start coming to Taiwan, they did not come to the throne like this, start preaching Dharma talk or build build uh, start building the temples. No, no, we do it the women's way, very quietly but very effectively. <laughs> So they went and visit the existing, uh, the, what you call it, vegetarian houses. You know, vegetarian houses here and there, you know, it's always with the shrine, shrine of ancestors, you know. And there were always old, old ladies, old grandma, cooking vegetarian food and just hanging around, a hanging around place for old, old women. The Pekunis approached these women, start talking about family, what kind of family you have, what kind of trouble, this and that. And just just, just women's talk in the kitchen, you know. But somehow it transformed these old women. The family start noticing the changes that is going on among these old family, the grand grandmas. You know, grandmas always complain. Grandma always complain about this, about that, about that, you know. But now oh, she's much more quiet, you know. And Oh, what's, what's wrong with you? you know? So whom you have been talking to? Oh, it's Shufu. Shufu is a teacher. I have been talking to this uh, teacher, this Pichuni, coming from, from mainland China. So the, the family started to be interested in meeting the Shufu. And that's how Buddhist families started converted Buddhist families. And then Buddhist families, then you need a network, you need a radio, you need um, you need newsletter, you need a publishing house, you need, oh, start coming out like that, you know. You, you need a school for the kids, so you start having Buddhist schools, you start having Buddhist colleges, Buddhist universities. So that's the success within 50 years. The success of these Pekunis in Taiwan, it's really uh, it's a model for us. You know, I see it as a model. It's really a model for us. Now Fu Guang San, the one that I visited. They have 300 monks. How many, how many Pekunis they have? Make a guess. One thousand! One thousand! Why is this? Why is this? You know, And they have 27 countries. They have branches in, th- sorry, 37 countries. Now, these Pekunis, some of them, uh, they're becoming friends. So they were telling me their success, the the, the, the secret behind their success. When they send out the monks, you know, send out the monks to this new country, so you have to hire a driver, you have to hire a cook, you have to hire uh, someone to do the account, you have to hire someone to do the housekeeping. So salary for four people. Now, when you send out monks, but when you send out Pikunis, send out two. They do everything. They do everything. So, this is a success story behind the women. Behind the women, and then the, the how, how they get all this spread all over. In Lafayette this morning, we visited. They said they have eight nuns, eight Pikunis. You know, and they really take care of a huge place, huge, beautiful place. Now, why they become ordained? In each country, the reason for becoming ordained is different. In my country, when we do this, uh, merit, uh, this temporary ordination, many of them are educated. They are working women. They cannot be away from their work for so long. So we give them nine days nine days ordination. But for women to shave, that's a big, big asking already. The fact that they agree to shave, that's a big step for them. And one of them, she's, she's ordaining to make merit for her ailing mother. Her mother has, what do you call it, bau waan wa ngai Diabetes. Diabetes, she had diabetes. So she had to have her legs amputated, one leg, both legs. And so the daughter, who has a master's degree and working a very good job, she became ordained because she wanted to make merit for her, for her mother. And many of the women who were ordained with me, uh, they do this to to make merit for their parents, or in fami- in one family they have ne- never had son, you know. So the fact that a daughter is ordained is fulfilling the parents' dream. Mm-hmm. Many of them wanted to study, wanted to went wanted to experience once in their lifetime, wanted to experience this monastic lifestyle, mm-hmm. you know. So different different. Uh, Different groups of people have different purpose when they become ordained. But the hidden, the hidden agenda that I didn't tell them before was I wanted to teach Buddhism to them because we come from a Buddhist country, but people do not know much about Buddhism. This is a shame, but it's true, you know? So during the nine days they were with me, I was teaching them four hours a day two hours in the morning, two hours in the evening, chanting a little bit of Pali so that they could pronounce the Pali words properly. And then we do sitting together. I take them out for arms round, you know, so, so it actually changed many of them. Ch- changed their lifestyle and changed their, the way they look at the world. I think that's very important. Of course, still, you know, for, for, the, for the people ordinary people, they still do it to make merit. They believe that that's a way of making merit, not so much about transforming themselves. But my idea is to, at least number one, to get them a better uh, commitment as a Buddhist, f- so that they understand better about Buddhism, about the true teaching of Buddhism, not, so that you don't sidetrack into superstitious practices. You know, so that's a, that's a constant, a constant uh, fight. That you don't don't slip down and, and and yes, I think I think we have been very successful with this recent uh, ordination. It happened only last month, sixth of April, mm-hmm. yeah, where where we ordained thirty five women at one time. So suddenly, you know, the temple suddenly you see so many so many women walking in the rope like this. It's it's really it's really warming the heart.
0: Any other comments or questions for Venerable? We have a few more minutes left.
1: You will be here with me tomorrow also? Raise your hand, let me see. Oh, quite a few, good, 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 good. Then I will save other stories to tell you tomorrow. (laughs) I brought this invisible bag with me and I can pull stories. Uh, people practicing Buddhism outside Buddhist culture Uh, many of you will just jump into sitting, but uh, very few may may be aware of the the Buddhist context, you know, Buddhist context that comes with stories comes with uh, cultural stories, comes with the textual stories it's very interesting, very interesting and you know, after some years it is the stories that remain with you. you know? Really, not, not so much about wisdom, not so much about uh, uh, the kind of argument that we use the brain, but it is the story, the story that touches the heart. You know, That is the one that really is going, going to remain with us for a long time, and particularly the kind of story that actually change us. Anyone who practice Buddhism, but does not change, you still have to work with it. Because it needs to bring about changes, improvement in our lifestyle that people can notice. And when you can do that, then you can become ambassador of Buddhism. (laughs) Now we give the floor to Larry, Mm. my brother.
0: Thank you so much, venerable, for sharing your teachings and I hope that you will join me in appreciating the preciousness of Venerable's teachings and um, as uh, she so eloquently described how she has offered her life to the Buddha um, Uh, part of this whole practice is, is that she cannot do that alone. And it's really this practice of, of interconnection and, and sangha that we support her efforts in, in offering her life to the Buddha, but also in that way she offers the teachings and her vision and, um, the preciousness of what she's bringing to not just personal transformation, but social transformation within the context of the Dharma that that is so needed in this world and it really depends upon our support and this practice that we call dhana and dhana is um, actually often it's translated as generosity but my understanding is, is that the actual literal translation is the act of giving and so um, because the the Dharma and, as you can tell from where Venerable is coming from, the teachings are so precious. Uh, you know, these things that actually transform our lives, how can we put a price tag on them? And yet, they need support. And and that is how the teachings have come to Northern California in, in 2009 in this miraculous transmission. And so... I invite you to um, uh, consider that and and offer um, what you can to continue this this stream of teachings and also, in particular, Venerable's work. And there's a basket in back as you as y- you um, exit the room. Um, the the registration fees are really just for the facility, and and Venerable has really offered her time and had to reorganize her travel schedule and incur some additional travel costs, so... Um, but she's offered all of that freely because it's the Dharma. And that liberation is, is, um... Uh, is fully accessible for everyone. So out of that spirit, I really invite you to offer as much as you can, both today and tomorrow, if, if you're going to be coming and invite you to, um, attend her day long tomorrow because it uh, um, it's such a unusual opportunity to have accessibility to her teachings. Um, and so um, yes please. If we were writing a check to whom would we write it. You would write it to Spirit Rock and Spirit Rock would Good. would um, forward the uh, the donations to Venerable. Any other and really, this is the, when Venerable was talking about the bindabat, the, the alms round, this is the alms round. This is the, this, is the, this is the continuation of how the Buddha programmed our interconnectivity and interdependence. That it's not about um, a monastic nun or monk going off into a cave for 25 years to get personal enlightenment. That there's a direct connection that they cannot live without us, and we cannot live without them. And that's the beauty. It's actually quite radical. I mean, it's, it's, it's very radical in, in the Western culture. Mm-hmm. In, in the Thai culture, my experience is, is, that it's, it has been resident there for so long, it, there's a beauty to it that flows, and, and that's why it's so revolutionary in this, ra- in what this Western culture. So, I really, um, Uh, thank you for coming and with your presence and, and again, invite you into that practice to the extent that you are able to. And just one reminder for those of you who haven't been to Spirit Rock, uh, very frequently, that as you exit, you, please do not turn left onto, um, Sir Francis Drake, because you might get into a (laughs) little accident. So please turn right and go through, uh, the town and, um, Go back to Fairfax, if that's the way you're going towards San Francisco. And hope to see you here tomorrow. What time tomorrow? Um, I believe it's at nine, 9.30. 9 o'clock. 9, <coughs> o'clock. nine, nine o'clock. o'clock, 9 o'clock. Yes. 9 o'clock. And there will be a, a meal offering um, uh, in the middle of the day. So feel invited to um, bring something to offer.
1: Larry, uh, shall, shall I tempt them a little bit about sure. what I will be doing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> will there will be Dharma talk, there will be sitting meditation. I plan to have sitting meditation, to it's guided meditation. So it will be something different from the mindfulness. I think I will do this concentration. Uh, two steps, one step and the second step. The second step will be for healing. So the first, first one, first sitting in the morning and the second sitting in the afternoon. And in between, we'll do games. <laughs> <laughs> we will do Qigong also. The shikong, you know, so that uh, you, the, the, the name, the title of the retreat is caring for the mind and the body. So we have to care for our body also, so that we connect between the mind and the body. So we'll do activities that involve phys- physical, and also at the same time also do the mental training. It will be something different. I was scared, you know, I mentioned to Sarah that could we make some noise here? <laughs> she said we can make some noise, so we'll make some noise tomorrow <laughs> together in order so that we can get to have a glimpse of ourselves clearer, okay? We have the purpose, not just, uh, oh, Pikuni, can you play? Of course we can play, but what is the purpose of playing? Yes, so that's, that is what I plan to do tomorrow. So please do join. Could you offer a yes, yes. Uh, some of you will be making offering, and this is what I usually have to give the chanting of blessing. Blessing because, because of your own action, not, not I am the one who actually gives the blessing. I'm just reminding you <coughs> that from your own action, this is the result of it. Yata, wherever harbor, bariburin de sacrang ever mewa, etotinang, petanang, opacapati, etchitang, patitang, tum, hunkipame was a mitchatu, sapeburen to manichote rasoyata. Sapi de yo, we watch on sad. May you drive home safely <laughs> everyone and see you tomorrow. Do you remember me Sandy? Yes, Sandy. yes. Hi. Oh,
2: so
1: good. <coughs> so so, it's good so good long. To see you. And then I heard that you were not well, and then you recovered oh, yes. and I recovered everything. You yeah. Know? Yeah. So so wonderful that you came. Thank <laughs> you. And I brought you my latest book, which is yes. about Ruth Denison. Yes. Yeah. Um, such a different path than yours, but deep Dharma. Yes. yes. I'm coming tomorrow. Are you happy to see me? I'm so